Well, I'm not sure I could have coordinated the um, preliminary songs any better than what they were. And certainly, Pastor Swanson taking a moment to explain the reality of Take My Life and Let It Be. Uh, that is a burden that God has placed upon my heart for this morning as I uh, prayed about what the Lord would have me to give. Always is a privilege to be able to stand in this pulpit and to um, address those who are following in the footsteps that the Lord led me in a number of years ago. And it's amazing how time does fly. It's getting further and further from the moment that I sat in these seats. But um, as I was looking to the Lord, He led me very clearly to the, the message that we're going to look at today. And it really is going to be a lot of building and then a few points of application. But looking to embrace God's plan to draw us to himself. You know, God is at work in each of our lives, and his goal is that his working, his patient, loving, caring, careful work in each of our lives is for the purpose that we might be shaped into his image, and that we truly would be able to say, Lord, here's my life. Take it. Let it be yours. Would, would my life move at the impulse of, of your love, at the impulse of your working, and uh, would we, as the clay, not react to God's working? Would we not say, well, no, I, I think it's better this way, or, or what about this? Or No, would we simply be that one who says, Lord, my life given to me by you is for you to use. And would we embrace that reality? Well, the backdrop for the Lord working in my life to lead me to this particular burden for today really would have been a, a series of what you might term as bad days. Have you ever had a bad day? You know, um, there, there are times where I, I, I consider my own bad days, quote unquote, and I, I look at the bad days that others have had. And if you were to, to rate my bad day versus the bad days that, that others have had, you know, my, my bad days are like at a zero or a one on, on the scale of one to ten. It's like they don't even quite register on the Richter scale. They're just, yeah, things don't go quite the way I want them to. But really, uh, you, you think about different trials that different ones have gone through, maybe a John Vaughn with the, the trial of fire and, and really the, the prolonged trial that he and his family went through or, or others. And, you know, I'm not here to really talk about all of that, but, but there is a sense in which you almost feel like that, that verse in Jeremiah where it talks about if you get tired running with the footman, how are you going to keep up with the horses? You know, when, it, when, when real trials and challenges come, and yet, what is my response, what is your response to those smaller trials of life? They really are a good opportunity for gauging where you're at. Are you getting frustrated? Do you find yourself frustrated with your roommate? Do you find yourself frustrated with maybe even yourself and uh, just kind of uh, and uh, reacting and, and reactionary and reactive? Or is there a sweetness of reality that, no, God is using this trial or this set of circumstances that isn't going quite the way I wanted to to shape his image in my life? There are a convergence of several dynamics that have brought me to meditate upon the book of Job. Now, it started in biology class. If you've spent much time in the book of Job, 
there are some wonderful declarations about who God is and about his creative design and just the, the marvels of his, his glorious creation. And I've had the opportunity now to teach biology for several years and enjoy that opportunity and really uh, enjoy the opportunity to lay out the realities of God's creative design at work and to just set that forward. And so Job had been a bit of a uh, meditation for a while and looking at some of the realities there. And then I found myself looking at some of the realities of Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. And, and you know, you, you better check yourself when you find yourself meditating on the book of Job, right? <laughs> what's, what's going on really in life? Um, did a bit of a reality check. But there is a sense in which what Job went through, and I, I don't know that any one of us will ever experience quite what Job experienced on that level and that magnitude, and yet his response in it and through it is very instructive for us and frankly has application that we need to take and, and put into practice in our lives as we look at the challenges that we face on a daily basis. And you may say, well, you know, this really doesn't, if what Job went through is a 12 on a scale of 1 to 10, and, and I'm more, you know, wherever you would put yourself, the reality is God would want us to respond as Job responded. And the self-checkups along the way really are a good synopsis of where you're at. And if, if we would wonder and if we would question ourselves and say, okay, am I ready to run with the horses? Am I ready really for all that God would have for me. And do I truly mean what I sing? And do I truly mean the reality of, Lord, take my life and let it be? Well, then in, in those small moments of life, the, the friction points, we have a test. And it's in those moments of testing that I want to call upon each one to embrace. God's drawing you to, you, to himself. Um, that is his glorious plan. I remember back in the, uh, the, the month of September, 1996, I had the opportunity of going on my first deer hunt. I grew up in New Mexico. Deer hunting in New Mexico was not whitetail, it was mule deer. And if you've ever had the opportunity to hunt mule deer, you follow a pattern a little bit different than what you might follow for whitetail. Mule deer don't follow a set path of always kind of going down this trail and um, following the, the same pattern necessarily that a, that a whitetail would. They, they just roam kind of wildly, and you have to go find them. And much of the western United States are, or is made up of public and Bureau of Land Man Management land, and so there are massive swaths, um, just thousands upon thousands, millions of acres of public land. And it's a little different than here in Wisconsin. I remember the first time I tried going camping in Wisconsin, I thought, okay, we'll find a, a, a state park and I'll, I'll be able to get secluded away from people. And there's a farmhouse here and a cornfield there. And it's just like, no, you, you really can't pull away. But in New Mexico, where I grew up, you, it wasn't hard to, to find a spot where you were miles away from the nearest living person and just be out in the middle of nowhere. Well, as a 12-year-old, I had the privilege of joining four of my uncles, on my first hunt to actually carry a gun. I had gone out previously one year before to tag along, and we had just a blast. It was a, a great time. Well, this year, I was able to come along and carry a gun. And so this was my first hunt, and actually it was a unique hunt for all of us. It was the first hunt 
that we all were carrying black powder rifles. This is the old-fashioned Revolutionary War style. You know, you, you get one shot. You better make it count. And when you're uh, done with that one shot, you, you uh, open up a little canister that you had. It had gunpowder on one end and the ball and, and a little wadding on, in the other end. And you would dump the gunpowder in the barrel, tap it down, and then take the, the ramrod. And you'd push the ball and, on the wadding down into the barrel and set it all. And you'd be ready for a second shot. But that generally would take about 30 seconds to get yourself reset for that second shot. And if your adrenaline is going and you're shaking and you're, you're, you're trying to do it carefully and yet you know, your, your gun barrel is doing this number and your hand is here, it, it may take a little longer than that 30 seconds. And so I, I realized all of these different dynamics were coming into play as I was looking forward to the hunt that I had there as a 12-year-old. And it was September, so fairly warm in New Mexico. What we would do is we would get up very early in the morning. We actually camped out in a state forest um, area, and we would hike from our campsite into various areas around and spend the majority of the day just glassing canyons, glassing open meadows, and then kind of push across it and see if we could jump anything up and, and be careful for where we were headed and, and you know, kind of keep the light of sight with other hunters and uh, be, be careful in that regard. But a lot of pushing and a lot of just hiking and so that, that was our, our plan of attack. On this particular day, it was a Thursday morning, we did what we had done the few days previous. I believe the hunt started on Tuesday and it was a week and a half hunt and we were gonna take the majority of that first week and possibly a few days of the following week for our specific hunt. Well, as the morning progressed, we got up, it was probably about five o'clock that we broke camp and headed into the, um, the wilderness to, to do our first push. And we were well, probably uh, four to five miles from camp when we decided that we had all gotten hot. We hadn't seen anything. In New Mexico, it can go from being very cold in the morning to quite warm by mid-morning. And we had all been dressed in layers and we were pretty hot and ready to just kind of call it a morning and, and head back to camp. And so we had gone the distance together. On our return, we split up. So it was me pushing one side of a canyon with one of my uncles and the other uncles were going to spread out kind of at a distance and then we were all going to push back toward camp. And we were anywhere from a quarter of a mile to a half mile apart. So I've kind of got my bearings on. I, I know where I'm heading. And uh, I'd been going along for about an hour. And I was just, just, you know, on one hand ready to get back to camp, but at the same time I, I was enjoying hunting and there is a statement that, you know, a, a bad day hunting is, a, is better than a good day in the office. And then there was a sense in which I was, <laughs> I was enjoying myself. It was good. I, I enjoyed the time out and was just walking along and I don't know what made me think. I, I've had this thought many times before and it's been wrong, but I, as I came upon this one particular draw, I thought there's going to be something here. And I've had that thought before and I've been wrong. But this particular time, I wasn't wrong. And as I came to the top of the draw, there below me, looking at me from behind a Christmas-type pine tree, was a mule deer. A couple of things that I knew as I looked at this mule deer were the fact that, um, one, it was a mule deer. <laughs> Two, I was hunting for a buck, it needed antlers, and it had antlers. How did I know? Well, it was behind a tree. Now, prior to going hunting, I had taken Hunter's safety course. 
Hunter Safety Course had given a number of rules of how to operate in the field. And then I remembered most of those rules, but there were a few key ones that I had decided to conveniently ignore as I stood up in the, the bright sunlight looking down into this kind of dark draw below me. Well, this mule deer stood about 80 yards from me behind a pine tree. Between me, my position, and him were four more pine trees. So I had a hole about this big through which I saw his face looking at me. Now, as I looked through that, like, okay, I can make this work. I'm, I'm up here. He's down there. I can kind of guess. When you're shooting, you don't want to guess, all right? So I can guess where I need to train my sights in order, and I, I double-checked, yes, I, I saw one antler kind of in, in the, the hole of the tree. It was, it was all there. I put that gun to my shoulder, and I sighted in on my target. I guesstimated about where I needed to go in order to get a clean shot, and I pulled the trigger. Upon impact, my target jumped. And in a nanosecond, I went from having a phenomenal day to having a really bad day. And we'll finish that story later, but <laughs> have you ever had a bad day? And it, they could come kind of out of the blue like that particular hunt did for me, where um, just to set the record straight, I didn't shoot somebody dressed up like a deer. So, so that... <laughs> That, that, that we're going to set that right so you can at least pay attention here. We'll, we'll come back to our hunt. But it, it very, you know, bad days, a whole, and I, I know I've already talked about this a little bit, but they come in a whole variety of different days. And, and that particular bad day would be one that I look back on. And, and there's a lesson that, that kind of is illustrative here, so we're going to come back to that at the end. I think of another day that maybe didn't go quite like I wanted to, and uh, this would be a very minor, maybe not so good day, but the day that my science teacher told me that she was retiring. Okay, now I have to figure out. I have to teach biology now, okay? And so in the, in the moment right there, okay, that may have been considered maybe not what I was choosing. And, and so, you know, these bad days, quote unquote, can take a lot of different forms, and they may be things that you just don't think of as, I wouldn't have done that, or it's not really the path that I'm looking at. So that's the broader context of what we're talking about, all right, is we consider what are bad days. And I understand that some of you have had really significant trials in your life, and I'm not in any way trying to minimize that, but at the same time, for us to understand, regardless of the level of trial, there is a response that God wants to call from each one of us. As you consider the book of Job... Um, it really is a, a beautiful book, both just from the reality of what it teaches us about um, the Lord. You have the glories of creation described here. It has the majesty of our God. The book of Job has certainly poetic and linguistic beauty. And, and even just the, the building of arguments and, and the counterpoint and the interaction between these different individuals. And certainly there are some points in Job where you, you read it and it's just a little bit hard to, to fully grasp. Uh, you come to the end of chapter 2 and, and you, you have 
Job sitting down with sores all over his body, and, and, and you realize just the, you can't wrap your head around all that Job went through, really. Like, we, we kind of get it, but we don't. And, and he's sitting there in an ash heap, scraping his body with a piece of pottery. And his friends show up. And for seven days, they just sit there and look at each other. Have you tried to sit without talking for even a day? Seven days. They just kind of sit there looking at each other. And and there is a a little lesson to be learned even in that. When somebody is going through great loss and and significant trial, there are times where you don't need to fill the, the dead space with words. Sometimes just coming alongside and being there to show support is going to be best done through just a quiet affirmation. And, and yes, but, but again, it, it, it is challenging. What, what do you say in those situations? And, and here you have these friends, and we'll talk about just kind of how they, they ended up coming. It was very sacrificial. They, they made an appointment, it says, to actually get together. When they heard about Job's trial, they, they made an appointment. I'm sure they had business. They had lives. They had things that they needed to do. And they stepped away from all of that. And they were willing to come and sit beside him. And so you see the loyalty of these friends. And you see the reality of their sacrifice. Certainly, you might scratch your head at moments in, in all that they were talking to Job about. But that's a blessing that they were willing to do that. Let's quickly just do an overview of the book of Job. You have in chapters 1 and 2 the reality of Satan's attack. You see that Job was a man of great wealth, and we'll come back and and look at chapter 1. But in the broad overview, the reality of Satan's attack, here's the the book of Job. You you see Satan coming in and talking with God in that interaction. We're familiar with that, and we'll look at it here in a moment. Chapter 3, Job begins to speak. Chapter 4 and 5, you have The first of his three friends responding to him, Eliphaz, begins to speak. Job then responds in chapter 6 and 7. 8 is a second friend, Bildad. 9 and 10 go back to Job. 11 is a third friend, Zophar. Then 12, 13, and 14, it's back to Job. 15 comes back to Eliphaz. 16 and 17, it's Job. Bildad in 18, 19 is Job, 20 is Ophar, 21 is Job, 22 is Eliphaz, then it's back to Job, back to Bildad in 25. And really by 25, we're kind of wrapping up Job's friends, and you have Job's final defense, and he, he comes in 26 to 31, and he rests his case. You come to the end of chapter 31, the beginning of chapter 32, and everybody's just kind of, whoa. Job's Three friends who had been talking, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are kind of sitting there like, wow, how could Job say what he just said? And they're, they're almost expecting a, a lightning bolt to come out of heaven. The things that Job said about God and to God, it just struck them, and then they wondered, and they were silenced. They, they had spent all of their time really trying to get Job to see why it was that these trials had come, and uh, to, to accept his fault, and yet... So maintained his integrity throughout. Then you have Elihu. And I don't know where Elihu actually comes from. He wasn't included in the group of three friends that showed up at the beginning. And uh, I searched around a little bit and couldn't actually land on exactly where he comes from. When, you, when he steps onto the scene in chapter 32, 
he actually has his lineage kind of described in, in, in a description of who he is. So possibly somebody who didn't have a lot of clout or a lot of knowledge of who he was. He does identify himself as a young man, and he says, you all are very old. So a younger guy coming onto the scene, and he says his bit in the course of chapters 32 to 37. And then you come to Job chapter 38, and God speaks. A number of rhetorical questions, a number of just glories of creation, a number of, this is who I am. And then the end of chapter 41 into chapter 42, you have God and Job wrapping it up. And that, without really going into verse by verse, is the overview of the book of Job, bookended with a conversation between Satan and God at the beginning, bookended at the end with a conversation between God and Job, and God bringing back and blessing Job in his final days. Well, who is Job? Let's go now. If you, if, I've heard pages turning and all. Let's go to Job chapter 1. Who is this man? Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. It would be worth noting what these different words mean. Perfect and upright. We understand that he's not sinlessly perfect or he hadn't arrived but there was a completion. Uh, Worsby points out the fact that he, he was complete and mature in conduct. And there was a sense of being upright or straight in character. You could count on him. There was consistency in the life of Job. He also was one who feared God. He tells us, Job does, in chapter... 28, verse 28, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so he, he understands and points out that um, he is a man who feared God and eschewed evil, went against it. The points here in verse number one, and especially the word perfect, have a connection to the idea of integrity. One who lives without duplicity or hypocrisy. What you saw is what you got. And honestly, throughout the book of Job, you see that theme coming back time and time again. Chapter 2, verse number 3, quickly. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And so you see here the integrity Job's wife, in verse number 9, looks at him and says, Job, dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. So Job's wife looks at him and says, Job, you, you have this perfection. You have this integrity. How about you just curse God and die? In chapter 27, verse 5 and 31, verse 6, his, his integrity is, is alluded to again as Job kind of defends his case as he says, no, wait a minute. I haven't done this, and I have lived. He, he defends himself as he looks at a life that is a life of character and integrity. And, and folks, if we're going to find ourselves responding properly in the big trials of life, 
there has to be a right response in those that we would say, well, this is just a small trial of life. And so often we find ourselves willing to excuse that bit of frustration or that bit of anger, that bit of hostility. But as we consider all of the different points of truth that we've been receiving, and certainly as I began meditating on the book of Job while it started thinking about creation and our creator, there is a reality that that thought took me very quickly to the fact that we are loved and the theme that we have both here behind us on the the wall as well as in our our church service as pastors been preaching about love just embracing and understanding what that is and the fact that this one who created everything loves me and he has a perfect plan for my life i can trust him and that's not just in the big picture of life that's in the little details of life because really if i can't trust him in the little details of what today looks like how am i going to trust him in the big picture They go together. And frankly, if we haven't proven how to trust him and to walk in perfectness, to walk uprightly, to walk in integrity in the little details of life, I submit, while the grace of God is sufficient, and and he's not going to tempt you and test you above that you are able, there must be the reality of living out integrity in the day-to-day details. And that's exactly what Job did. You have, looking back at chapter 1, how Satan comes before the Lord, and, and we'll kind of we'll read some, we'll paraphrase others as we look through these first two chapters of Job. In verse number 5, it was so when the days of their, uh, I'm sorry, Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect man, and an upright, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon him put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And you have in verses 13 down to verse number 19, one account after another. As Job, I don't don't know what this day looked like for Job before these messengers started coming. But I tell you what, talk about a bad day. And not to be trite or funny about it, but just the reality. One right after another. We were plowing in the field, and, and this happened, and we were doing this, and this happened. And then your, your children, they were feasting, and, and, and kind of the capstone of it all. They, they were feasting, and this massive windstorm, a tornado came and blew the house down. I'm the only one to escape, to tell you. And you have everything that Satan does under God's control and allowance, but all that Satan does in touching Job's possessions and his, those things that he held dear from his children to his wealth and everything else, just all being taken away from him. Look at verse 19 with me. I'm sorry, verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground. 
Now, the last word of verse number 20 is the word worshipped. If you reread that verse, what word would you think naturally would fit better there? Wept or mourned or, you know, in some way, just turned his eyes upon himself and said, what a terrible day. It would be natural, it would be logical, it would be the right thing. But no, we have Job upon hearing one loss after another all the way to the loss of his children. Looking heavenward. And yes, there was emotion. There was grief. There was the reality of brokenness. And yet, in the midst of it, his eyes went heavenward. He worshiped God. What was it that he said? Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. The same thing really happens again in chapter 2, as Satan comes again before the Lord and before God, and God looks at Job. And... Do you see how quickly Satan is willing to pivot? You know, his argument in chapter 1 was pretty solid. God, Job's only following you because you've you've protected him from physical loss and you've blessed him with all of these things. Let me take that and he'll curse you. It happened. Job didn't curse God. But Satan didn't accept, admit defeat. He just quickly changed his tactic. He, he just said, oh, well, you know, yeah, stuff. It's not that important to Job, but let me do this. And, and there is a very real sense in which Satan's attacks are going to come, and they're not going to have logic or, or reason to them, and certainly he's not going to play by any set of rules. His, his goal is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And if he could do it to Job, he'll do it to you. And that really brings us to the first of three truths that we need to embrace if we're going to truly be able to embrace God's plan to draw us to himself. First of all, we need to realize that there are trials that are going to come in life. We will face trials, and we are told in the New Testament to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Trials are inevitable, And their purpose is to bring us to God. As Satan came before God and he looked at Job, God knew that he had a plan. And his plan was to bring Job closer to himself. As a child, my dad would do a number of different things with each of us, his children. He had seven children. Still does, um, has seven children. But uh, one of the things that he was, was known for was um, he would take a infant anywhere probably from about three months old on up and, and work to get that child, his, his own children typically, but other times if, if mothers would allow their children to do it, he would, he would try with the others, but to try to get them to stand 
on his hand. And so, you know, kind of wiggly legs at, at three months, not a whole lot going, he'd support. By the time the child was four, five, six months, they're able to stand on their own, and he would do a number of different, not necessarily acrobatic things, but some balancing things and strength training. And as a, I, I don't remember doing that. I, I was too young when that took place. But I, I remember as a guy a little bit older, you know, 18 months or so, my father putting me on top of the refrigerator and kneeling down below me and saying, jump. And then that went from there to he would put me on top of the roof and say, jump. Now, if somebody today took me <laughs> and put me on top of a roof and told me to jump, I would say they were trying to abuse me. But you know, in a very minor way, my father knew what I could handle. He knew what he could handle. And his goal in it was, one, building trust. But two, even just the enjoyment of that father-son relationship. And I, I, I love to do that. And I remember, I, I think I was probably, I don't know, 16 or 17 when I stopped jumping on. Oh, quite, but <laughs> whatever age I was. You know, I was old enough to remember it, and I, I was probably four or five the, the last time. And our church building had a kind of a flat roof, and so it wasn't that high or that steeply pitched or anything. So it was, it was not a concern. Like, I would just tumble off the, the edge, but it, was, it would work out. And the, the roof had a slight slope to it, so the one side of the church building you could reach pretty easily. And if I walked over to the other side, it would put me up about two feet higher, and that was even, you know, a better distance. And so... But, you know, in all of that, my father knew what I could handle and what he could handle and what, honestly, if I chose to remain in fear away from the call to jump, I would, I would stay there and, frankly, would be further from my dad and not that my, and again, don't, don't over-assess it, that the relationship wasn't breached, but at the same time, there wasn't that closeness of relationship until I was willing to come to that edge and trust and jump right off. And there is, in the trials that God allows, a reality. That what God is going to allow in your life is under his control. And he is going to be tempering it on the basis of what you can handle and drawing you closer to himself. And I, I understand that we're not dealing, and my own personal testimony here is not some massive trial where, look how God is delivered, but I realize in those small moments of life that God is wanting to use those to draw me close to himself as well. A very real point of meditation upon this began over Christmas. Um, my wife and I had been putting off a particular remodel project in our home that involved um, taking our kitchen and our main level bathroom out of commission because of some mold issues in the bathroom and some other things. And I just, I was kind of dreading doing the job. I knew it was going to be a bit of a process. And it, it seemed like doing it over Christmas break would be a, a logical and a good time to do it. I had extended time to be, to be able to work on it and could just do it consistently. And, and to be able to have you know, the, the little people that live in the home with, with me, to have them out from underfoot. And so we, we celebrated Christmas as a family the first couple of days of Christmas break. And then my wife and the kids drove down to her family. And 
Uh, we normally enjoy spending that time with family, but we made a kind of a challenging decision to go on ahead and have them go, and I would stay back and, and knock out this big phase of a job that I had been dreading for a while. The day after my wife left and I was staying here, I came down with COVID. And my Christmas break was spent sitting on a couch in the corner of my living room looking at the job that I had started before they left. We had kind of disassembled the kitchen, and, and I had stuff all over the living room and the dining room, and, and, and it was kind of a, a messy zone. But one day after another clicked off, and I realized, wow, this, this is not going quite the way I had wanted it to go. But you know, in that trial, and again, it's, there are certainly more significant trials than that that could be in any of your lives even at this moment, but for me, that was a trial, and I had to realize, you know, even in this, the hand of God is at work, and I realized I could be frustrated or I could respond in any number of different ways, but you know, this Christmas was a very special time. In a little corner of my living room, there was a little spot that I left that was not covered in pots and pans and pantry stuff and different things. It was a full, we kind of did both of them together, and, and we had gotten it all pulled down, and that was when I came down with COVID, there was a little spot where I was able to have time with the Lord. And I had to come with, you know, the first two or three days. I, I just kept thinking, okay, I'll kick it and I'll be good to go. And I, I realized, no, it's, it's just not going away. And I've, I've been sicker before. It wasn't like I was just flat on my back vomiting for 10 days. But it just the, the get up and go had gotten up and gone. And it just wasn't there. <laughs> And I, I watched those days, and I, I called my wife as she was looking to come back on Saturday. I said, honey, I'm looking forward to having you back, but you need to know the reason why you haven't seen many pictures of progress is because there's, <laughs> nothing's been done. It looks really bad. And, you know, I, I would have personally chosen that to have been different, but I, I wouldn't trade the opportunity that I had and the lessons that I learned in that moment. And these trials of life... Significant or maybe not so significant, whatever they are, are an opportunity for you to embrace and to draw near to God. Consider quickly here the final two points. While trials are inevitable they are, and they are used to bring us to God, Satan does answer to God. And, and you may ask the question, okay, who was it that touched Job? Was it God or was it Satan? And Satan could say, well, jo uh, God did it. But no, it was Satan that did it, but God allowed it. And so ultimately, isn't it comforting to know that whatever is allowed is not Satan just taking free reign and doing whatever he will. He does answer to God, and God is a controlling limit in it. Therefore, you can take the reality of the end of Job, where God talks about his creative wonders and all that he did. And, and, and he talks about the animals, and he talks about the glories of, of the created world around us. You could take confidence in the fact that the God who did all of that cares about you and he will take care of your details for today. There's confidence that comes when you can rest in that. Knowing no matter how big the trial is or how little it is, this is an opportunity for me to see my God in this because while Satan may have a handle in this or it could just be a trial that God is wanting to use to draw me to himself or maybe it's even a chastening because even in chastening, God is working to draw us to himself. Do you realize that the God of love who loves you so deeply, eternally, has a plan to work in your life that in all things we are drawn closer to him. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he, he works all things together. For our good and his glory. 
And you have to understand that. So you see this first axiom, trials are inevitable. Satan does answer to God. You've got to remember that. And as Satan answers to God, kind of that corresponding reality that goes with it, God does limit. So as I, as a 12-year-old, pulled that trigger on my gun and I looked down below me and that target that I had trained my sights on moved through the opening that I had seen part of its face and one side of its antler. The animal jumped upon the bullet's impact. It was a good shot. But the animal jumped, and I realized that the body colors, as I saw the rest of its body pass through that little window that had allowed me to see it, were the wrong colors. Now, no, it wasn't like black and white stripes. (laughs) But it was an elk. And I knew enough about mule deer and elk to know that I had trained my sights on the wrong animal. That made for a bad day. Well, remember, it was a muzzleloader. I'm, I'm sitting there shaking, trying to get the, the powder to go in. I'm, I'm, I'm excited, yet just crushed. Like, oh, what did I do? No. How could this be? Surely not. No. And it, I'm replaying it all in my mind just over and over again. And and the uncle who was closest to me on this side of this particular canyon that we were on, he had probably been about a quarter of a mile away, heard the gunshot, so he came running. And um, he he gets there, and I I had just finished up loading my gun, driven the the bullet home. And he says, wow, did you get him, Matt? I said, yeah, 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 I got him. Yeah. And uh, this particular uncle is an adopted Navajo uncle, and we at that point called him Chief. Um, we now call him Uncle Paul, but at that point I called him Uncle Chief. And uh, he looked at me, or I looked at him and said, Uncle Chief, I, I have to tell you, I, I think he was an elk. He didn't know what to do with it. Like, what? <laughs> you, did, you did what? I said, well, yeah, I was, I was standing here, and he was standing there, and I, I told him everything I just told you. And I said, I, I kind of had to guess where his vitals would be. He said, well, let's, let's go down and see. So we went down, and I, I kind of came to the tree, and I said, I think he was standing, and sure enough, he was standing right here. And he ran, oh, yeah. So that elk went about 50 yards and dropped dead, which is a good shot. Too bad it wasn't what I was hunting for, Right. So my other uncles from the other side of the canyon came running up, and everybody together all kind of said, okay, well, 12-year-old, honest mistake, don't touch it, just leave it alone. You, you, boy, that, that's a bad deal, but just, just leave it alone. So we, we made a choice, me and my uncles, to walk away from it. And I've never actually had a ranger come to our camp prior to that afternoon. But there was a ranger that came to our camp that afternoon, and you know what? I was scared stiff. The last person I wanted to see was a ranger. Well, he came just to check on how we were doing, and he left. That was Thursday afternoon. This was back in the era before cell phones, if you can imagine. So it wasn't until Saturday night I went back with one of my uncles for church, not with my parents, but in a nearby town um, at my uncle's church. And I called my parents that night and told them kind of what had happened, where the hunt was at. None of us had gotten anything other than that. Um, 
And my dad finished the conversation with, well, Matthew, let me pray about that. Now, in my 12-year-old mind, I didn't know what there was to pray about. But he sought some legal counsel, and he reached out to a few friends, and he called me back on Sunday night, and he said, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of research, a little bit of looking, and the right thing to do is to report your mistake. And I, just to, to summarize very quickly, I, I had to, on Monday, call the local Department of Natural Resources and to communicate that I had shot an elk illegally and had attempted to cover it up. I went from there to phone call to actually having to go in and fill out a complete report. That led to going to juvenile court. And I actually had a record until I was 18. The judge actually was at the end of his day, and he just was having a, must have, he must have been having a bad day, too. Because <laughs> he looked at me and he said, kid, I just want you to know if you're disrespectful or you give me any cheek, I can put you in a boy's home and I can do this. And, I, and I'm just, <laughs> yes, sir. Um, and, and he said some mean things. He said, I don't hunt, but I know the difference between a deer and an elk. What's your problem? But, you know, through all of that, and, and how does that really tie in? Ultimately, there were a number of lessons that God wanted to teach me, and our time is gone, so I'm not going to really delve into that and didn't intend to. But, but the fact is, in that day, I had a bad day, and I would have walked away from it. And, and it's ironic that the DNR, the, the ranger that I talked to, was a lady, unsaved as far as I know. But she lives in the town that that my uncle lives in, and he's a pastor there. And my uncle had agreed that we shouldn't touch the elk, and he had chosen to, to let it go. But then he agreed as my guardian to join me when my parents felt like the best thing to do was to go on ahead and report him. And I remember him sitting there in front of this ranger as she reamed him out. And she said, I may never have known who shot that elk, but you were teaching this kid that it's okay to make a mistake and to cover it up. And here you have this unsaved lady just letting a preacher in her town have it. And uh, lessons like that, and, and uh, I'm close with my uncle, um, appreciate just his willingness to stand by my side through that. But the reality is, she pointed out some things, and there were other lessons, and I had to do community service in a state park. And I, I, I'm excellent at picking up cigarette butts. I mean, I just, <laughs> I can do it. And uh, did, did such a good job that I was hired like five times over by different ones of the ranger staff. They're like, hey, you've got a job. Come back. It's like, no, thanks. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. But yeah, you know, God has a plan in the trials of life. And so whether significant or insignificant, whatever it may be, look to him knowing that everybody is going to go through trials and everybody's going to have a bad day. But God is in control and he wants to use those trials in your life to bring out his image in you. Will you allow him to do that? Lord, thank you for the life of Job. Thank you for these thoughts. I pray that you would help us as we consider the reality of your call upon our lives to live for you, I pray. I ask these things in your name. Amen.